I love it when somebody comes and they've done their work on my work and they see that there are specific pieces of experience that we may have that is relevant to their company and that's why they're seeking us out. That kind of intentionality to how you're picking your investor is actually exciting for us to see because that's a leading indicator that you're making really good decisions elsewhere as well. I'm Scott McGrew, a technology reporter for NBC stationed right smack in the middle of the future, Silicon Valley. Come with me to the source of all the money funding that future, the special place everyone in Silicon Valley knows simply as Sand Hill Road. I'll admit the HBO series Silicon Valley is starting to show its age, but I often point to it as a fairly realistic depiction of what happens here. For instance, a pitch meeting with venture capital. Unless you're VC or an entrepreneur, you're never going to see what that's like. Here's a clip from the show. The fictional venture capitalist Peter Gregory, played by the late, great Christopher Welch, negotiating a term sheet with a very nervous startup CEO, Richard Hendricks. We're just really excited to get going, Mr. Gregory. Yes. Who's we? Myself. Him. Uh, the guys back at the house. Guys? What guys? Did you just take a sip from an empty cup? Yes. Why did you do that? Just something to do. The real-life Hamantanasia, a partner at General Catalyst, says Silicon Valley, the TV show, gets a lot right. Well, it's sometimes embarrassingly accurate, so much so that I've stopped watching it because I live it every single day and I just don't need another show that reminds me of how uh, eclectic this whole uh, business really is. As we venture through our podcast on venture capital, I asked Hamant, an investor in big names like Airbnb and Stripe, to walk us through some of the basics. Venture Capital 101. Establish your credentials for me. You have invested in what? Impress me with what it is that you've given money to and said, ha, I was there when that, that started up. Yeah, so we have been investors in... Uh both consumer and uh, software businesses. On the consumer side, companies you would know would be Kayak, which is actually a company that started in our offices. We're investors in Airbnb, uh, Snap, um, and then a lot of interesting business-to-business -business software as well, like Stripe, which is a very large payments company, and, and many others. We've probably invested in about 500 or so companies. Which one's your your most proud? Or are you most proud of? So interesting. Um, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, if I look at if pride is defined by which ones are going to create the biggest return for us, I think companies like Stripe uh, and Airbnb are obviously a huge part of the economy today in different ways, and they're going to be great returns for us and our investors. You know, you can also look at pride in terms of where you feel like you've had the greatest impact. And uh, I've been involved in building a company called Livongo, which is a, a subscription for consumers that have chronic conditions like diabetes, and it helps them manage their disease in a way that they can essentially not worry about it every single minute and have peace of mind. And that's a company that started in our offices. We got it going, and it's done really well in, in, its, in, in its mission. And you know, there's a great sense of pride. I, I, I can't tell you that's going to be as big as some of these other companies. Time will tell, but... But, but it make, but may make somebody's life better. Make, make, that's right. Well, and, and we, had, we had a very important role in creating it. So pride comes from here's, here's a business that probably would not have existed if we weren't uh, uh, involved. 
In the case of let's use Stripe, did you go to them or did the brothers come to you? I, how does that work? Who comes to who first or does it depend? So it's really interesting. Um, we probably, uh, I can speak for myself, I probably get sent 10 to 20 business plans every single day. A small portion of them would be from folks that we know and respect and their referrals, high-quality referrals. A lot of them would be over the transom, so people sending it over LinkedIn or you know, somehow getting my email and sending it and guessing my email. And if I look back at the last 17, 18 years of doing this, most of what we've invested in is either because we had a point of view and we went out and found a company that we thought best fit that point of view, or it got referred by somebody we really respect. So one of the things I always advise people on is if you want to get on the radar screen of investors in places like Silicon Valley, try to get a referral. Try to get introduced to them because that just helps us cut through the clutter because we can only see so many business plans. When I am looking for funding, if I'm coming to you, how do I choose where to go? Or do I start at one end of Sand Hill Road or Palo Alto University Avenue and work my way down? How do I choose the firm? So for me, it actually gives me insight into who you are uh, and how you uh, run the process around this very question. If you're truly going to go talk to everybody, that's sort of a sloppy process. And chances are you're probably building the rest of your company in a sloppy way as well. So I actually get turned off by that. I think I bet most investors will. What I would be very interested in is, or I love it when somebody comes and they've done their work on my work, and they see that there are specific um, pieces of experience that we may have that is relevant to their company, and that's why they're seeking us out. That kind of intentionality to how you're picking your investor is actually exciting for us to see because that's a leading indicator that you're making really good decisions elsewhere as well. I'm not going to ask you to name names, but oftentimes when I'm pitched uh, by a company, they'll say, you know, we're backed by General Catalyst. We're backed by Kleiner Perkins. We're backed by Silver Lake. Are there venture capital firms that I shouldn't get my money from, in which if I say, well, I got my money from, you know, McGrew Capital, everybody will roll their eyes and say, oh, well, you're not a serious company because McGrew Capital is not a serious venture capital firm. That's a good question. I think like any other business, there are uh, really high quality uh, competitors and competitors are weak. Uh, I do think you want to be careful again about picking the right firm. But to me, the, the true north uh, there should be about uh, the firm that has done work in your area and has, uh, and, and I do think a legacy of success in a firm matters because when you do say you're backed by General Catalyst the, and, and you're going and trying to build a team, chances are it'll be attractive to them that uh, a strong firm like ours has blessed uh, the business plan and has chosen to spend their time and money on working on that business with the founder. That's just a good indicator as you're going to go recruit the team. So, so I do think do your work and, and thoughtfully consider who's the right partner, both in terms of their reputation and also in terms of their relevancy to your business. If I come to you and I say, you know, Hamant, I've got this idea. You know how people have extra rooms and I'm going to put it online and I'm going to call it Airbnb or Hamant, here's an idea. People are driving around in their cars and I'm going to make an app in which people could pick you up and take you where you wanted to go. How in the world do I know how much money to ask for to get that going. What's a reasonable yeah. ask? I mean, yeah, I've just invented Uber and I've just invented Airbnb. We would know now how much they're worth. But when it's only on paper, how much should I ask for? I think it's really interesting. You have to break down 
the development of your business over the next few years into key milestones. And, and I would say, uh, I think she should ask for the amount of capital needed to de-risk, you know, with some buffer to your important milestones that you think are essential. So and that, justify it, I and assume, justify as well. It. Exactly. And here's, 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 a ca- here's why this much capital is needed. So we can prove that in the city of New York, we got, as an example, got people to rent their extra rooms out, right? In the case of Airbnb, for example. And, and that if we were able to prove that, then we will come back and ask for more money from that same investor and others because you have actually de-risked the business. So breaking it down into what you're trying to de-risk is one way to think about capital needs. The other flip side of that question is, okay, we've agreed on a number. Now we've got to agree on what does that represent as far as a percentage of the company? Because yeah. I'm going to give you're going to give me money. Yeah. I'm going to give you a percentage of the company. But again, this seems sort of theoretical as to, well, is that worth 10%? Is that worth 20%? There is no math to it. It is very theoretical. So the way we think about it is... We uh, essentially go and try to understand how will this business develop over the next five, 10 years and how much capital is needed, which will mean, which will give us some sense for how much additional dilution the company will take. And our goal is to try to make sure that the ownership that we get and that the founders are giving up is a good balance of what we need for our opportunity cost and our return profile, but also which will keep the founder incentivized to do this for a long time because they will get diluted over time. So if the founder who's building the business after two or three rounds is going to end up having a couple of percent of the business, they won't be interested in doing this. So that team won't stick around to build a business. So it's not in our interest to take too much. And obviously, it's not in our interest as capitalists to take too little. So I think this is always a, a balance. And rather than using math to justify it, we try to think about the long-term needs of the business and make sure everybody's going to come out uh, uh, you know, with a with a nice return if the business is successful. Is this adversarial in the sense that I come and I sit in this conference room with my founder and I say, Hamant, we'd like this much money and we're willing to give, you know, this much of the company and you say, well, how about this much money and that much of the company? Or are you on my side? Who's on my side in these negotiations? Or, do, or am I bringing a lawyer who really knows what he's talking about or she? What? Uh, great founders here typically do is they have advisors, which are often founders running their own businesses, that that they will be uh, consulting to get their advice on how to navigate it. And then the questions are, you know, who's the right person to involve as the investor and how much to give them? Because sometimes you might actually dilute yourself more and give a higher percentage of your company to an investor if you think they're a better investor than your other option. So it's a trade-off. And so founders do lean on other founders uh, to get that advice uh, along the process. Our, our conversations are not adversarial. I think, first of all, really good companies often have multiple choices. Uh, they can take capital from because there's many firms uh, that do this, and and so uh, it, it it the discussion always is sort of contained in a narrow band of like the difference of opinion. So then it's just a matter of do you want to take the leap and are you a good fit? So as as anxious as this process could be, because for founders it's a really big deal on either side. They're they're bringing a partner in, they're giving up a piece of the company. Uh, you know, it actually ends up not being that complex when it truly is happening. After that's done and we've agreed on something, I mean, is it a giant check that, you know, I get from Publishers Clearinghouse or does just some numbers show up in my bank account? Oh, yeah. So after uh, we have 
handshake and we've signed, we'll sign a, what's called a term sheet. It'll have a basic set of terms, including some of our legal rights, uh, uh, which is our ability to invest more in the company if we want. And if the founders want to sell the business, we want to be involved in that decision. And there's some board governance oftentimes. Uh, so our role as a director and what, is, what does that mean? And then that goes into legal documentation. Typically, this process can be done anywhere from a week to a few weeks. And uh, after that, a wire magically shows up in your account. Can you give me, you know, just vague anecdote or vague tips on maybe somebody who blew it at a meeting like this or somebody who crushed it at a meeting like this and you said, all right, that's it. I've made a decision one way or the other. You know, after having done this for so long, we usually know very quickly that we want to work with somebody or not. And it's not a reflection on them. It's just, do we think that business is going to be extraordinary? And they're extraordinary. All the things that we would want to see. And there's definitely occasions where we like the business so much that we essentially tell the founder to go sit in the other room. We discuss it as partners. And if we really like it, we will all go sit down with the person and make a deal with them that very day. That has happened many times. Uh, doesn't mean those businesses end up being really successful in the end. I could probably say there's not that much correlation, but you know, we, we do uh, uh, push ourselves to move fast because at the end of the day, if it's a good fit, let's not waste time in a complex fundraising process that doesn't really add value to the business. Let's uh, make a good deal and let the founders get back to building the business and help them. You've talked about how you've done deals with people you knew or people that you were familiar with, that sort of thing. Have you had a situation in which it was sort of the the Facebook Zuckerberg sort of kid out of Harvard sort of, the, the, the way we would have filmed a movie, right? You know, the experienced VC with all the money and the young, nervous kid, you know. Uh, have you had that experience? Oh, yeah, many times. And I wouldn't say nervous because they're, they are uh, very bold and ambitious founders in oftentimes. But when we met Evan and Bobby from Snap, they were still building the company on the Stanford campus. When we met John and Patrick uh, from Stripe, they were still in Cambridge. In fact, I met them because uh, I used to live in Cambridge at that time and I was uh, teaching at MIT and somebody connected us uh, and that's... Uh, uh, that's how we met. And, and uh, I mean, I can tell you it was not that they were nervous. They absolutely have had great ambition and they've gone and done everything they say they would and more. That said, you're the experienced VC who has all the money. They are the young startup who needs the money and are making a big ask, right? I mean, you know, this thing's got several commas in it. And when you say yes, what does it look like on the other side of the table? When, when a couple of young people suddenly realize, oh, I think he just gave us $10 million. Yeah. I mean, first of all, uh, in in the situations with the best companies, it's a really competitive scenario. There's many of us trying to do this. So it's more, I hope we chose the right partner for the $10 million is what they're probably thinking, as opposed to, I, I think they just, what do we do that they give so us So the smile's actually on your end, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, it's, it's, we're relieved that they chose us. I mean, that's the way we, we it's a service business. That's, we're here to be supportive of the founders. And, and it very much is, you know, we got the opportunity to work on a project that we were really passionate about and the founders chose us. That's like a huge win on our side. That's the way we think about it, regardless of what happens in the business. Any, any last thoughts, anything I should have touched on? No, look, I, I think my only um, advice to uh, those that are listening and thinking about starting a business is don't be um, inspired to start a business because you've seen massive outcomes on the other side. Insp be inspired to start a business because you want to start, solve a problem that you think is really interesting and, and important to you. And 
that problem may lead to the creation of a small business uh, that is really satisfying to you and, and doesn't actually even need venture capital, or that problem might lead to the creation of the next Stripe or Facebook, and you do need to raise venture capital, and you end up building a company with you know thousands or tens of thousands of people, but uh, don't let the outcomes drive it. It's a way of life, being an entrepreneur, and, and focus on do you really want to work that way, because... In that scenario, if success didn't come, you won't regret it. You'll actually enjoy the journey because you're working on a problem you really care about. Excellent. Thank you. Great. I assume you were recording, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> probably got if not, you're going to get a totally different answer this time. <laughs> Next week on the podcast, Keith Kroc guides not one, not two, but three Silicon Valley companies through their IPO. The latest, DocuSign rocketed his company above a $4 billion market cap. He'll guide us through the process of taking your company public. I'm Scott McGrew. See you next week on Sand Hill Road. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. If you're in the San Francisco area, that's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.